A very important component of this type of fandom comes from the passion that the people who work at that company have. Hello and welcome to Minted Dialogue, episode number 355. Today is Sunday, the 12th of January, 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. Let me say how very grateful I am for your choosing to take the time out of your busy day for this listen. Quick shout out and thanks for putting up a review on the show from Composer1853. So this week's interview is with David Meerman Scott. Aside from being a friend, David's a man who invented the term newsjacking. He's a world-renowned author, speaker, and strategist on the key topics of sales, marketing, and PR. His books include Real-Time Marketing and PR, a Wall Street Journal bestseller, The New Rules of Sales and Service, and my personal favorite, Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. In this interview with David, we discuss his very new book, Fanocracy, co-written with his daughter, Ryko Scott. We look at how to develop fans, the difference between fan-centricity and customer-centricity, the differences for developing fans for luxury brands, and a whole lot more around fanocracy. David Meerman Scott, welcome back on the show. It's been four years since I've had you on, and uh, my, it's been fun following you. So tell us, in your own words, what are you up to? Who are you, David? Has it been four years, Minter? Yeah, oh my since, gosh. since our, our, our podcast together, yeah. That's amazing, amazing. Well, thank you for, very much for having me on. Um, I, uh, I am somebody who looks for patterns in the universe that I identify as being important for marketers to understand. And when I find a, a pattern that's interesting to me, I start to write about it and speak about it and blog about it and tweet about it. And then if it really seems interesting and, and people react to it, it turns into a book. And even though I've written 11 books, three of them have been around this new pattern in the universe I identified. The first one was I identified in the very early 2000s that marketing on the web is not about advertising, but about publishing content. And my book, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, came out originally in 2007, was the first book that talked about marketing on the web as publishing content. Mm -hmm. And that book has now sold 400,000 copies in English and it's in 29 other languages. The second pattern in the universe I saw, nobody else was talking about, that I had to get out there into the world in the form of a book was, was when Twitter and other social networks went real time. And Google, as you may remember, more than a decade ago, Google was not real time. If I posted a blog post, it took two months for that to be indexed by Google. Right. <laughs> a lot of people don't remember that. But of course, over the last 10 years, um, if you publish a blog post, it's indexed instantly. So when Google f changed that f way they were doing their algorithm and Twitter was starting to take off, I'm like, oh, my God, the world of marketing has become real time. And you connected two dots. Yeah, it was connecting patterns in the universe that other people weren't seeing. That book came out um, about 10 years ago, became a Wall Street Journal bestseller, um, a very important book, also the concept of newsjacking, which I identified and is now in the Oxford English Dictionary, which I'm very proud of. I don't blame you. My goodness. Got my name against it. Um, and the new pattern in the universe I've identified is that we've 
as as marketers, we've doubled down too much on the digital channel. And I think that consumers are getting fed up and the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communication. And we're swinging back to a true human connection. And I know this is something you've talked about a lot, Minter, but the new book I wrote is called Fanocracy turning fans into customers and customers into fans. And it's all about how we can get back to a true human connection. Well, you see, so what are some of the dots in the universe that made that come to life for you? So the first dot that really made it come to life was, and I know you're going to appreciate this, hmm. that I was with my daughter. She's now 26. She was 25 at the time, uh, 21 at the time. This was five years ago. And I was just saying, you know, what is it with me and the Grateful Dead? <laughs> and I said, you know, I've been a fan since I was 15 years old. I went to my first Grateful Dead show when I was 17 years old in 1979. It was still with Keith and Donna. Mm. Uh, um, and Jerry was actually playing uh, Wolf, um, the, his famous guitar Wolf, in that show that I saw in 1979. What is it with me and the Grateful Dead? Since then, I've seen 75 shows. And uh, I said, you know, more than that, my, my buddy Brian Halligan now owns Jerry Garcia's Wolf. He's the guy I, I wrote the book, Marking Lessons from the Grateful Dead, with. I'm just such a massive live music fan. I've seen mm -hmm. 780 live music shows in my life. And she said, I know, Daddy, I'm the same way. I've not only seen every Harry Potter movie, read every Harry Potter book multiple times, gone to the Wizarding World of, of Harry Potter in Orlando, Florida several times, gone to the UK to go to the studio tour where they made the movies. I just finished a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. And I put that out on a fan fiction site that's been downloaded thousands of times and, and commented on hundreds of times. The pattern in the universe that we, my daughter and I recognized is that on one hand, the social channel is clogged and cold and dark and polarized in many ways, but we're both massive fans of something. Her Harry Potter, me, the Grateful Dead and live music in general. And so we decided to explore whether there was something there more than just what we were seeing. And we started to talk with people. We ended up speaking with thousands of people about what they're a fan of, hundreds of different companies, mainly with CEOs how they grew fans, and there absolutely were patterns there around how organizations can generate fans. And I think this is a book that the time is right for, that even just a few years ago, the time may not have been right. Wow. So a couple of thoughts. One is um, when one thinks about fans, it's, it's sort of much easier to think about a musical fan or a yes. book fan or a sports fan. There's something cold about being a brand fan or that <laughs> seems to be much less propitious for fandom. Um, actually, that was something that we tested and we really wanted to make sure, um, does that actually work? Do people become fans of all kinds of organizations? And in fact, they do. We've found examples of, of people who have become fans of, of doctors, of dentists, of nonprofits, 
um, of enterprise software companies, of B2B companies, of, of companies that create commodities. Um, I got two favorite examples to quickly share. One is there's a, a, a U.S. government agency that has tens of millions of rabid fans. They wear T-shirts. They wear ball caps with the logo of this government agency. They have stickers of this government agency on their computer. It's NASA. Sure. NASA's a, NASA's a government agency with tens of millions of fans. They have over 50 million um, followers on their Instagram. And it's a government agency. And I'll tell you one more thing about that, David, is that when I was in Shanghai, I saw Chinese people with NASA on it. Yes. And I've that's a concept. All over, the world. all over the world I've seen. I mean, like walking, in Russia. <laughs> walking streets. I was in the Seychelles um, uh, three weeks ago, and um, not a tourist, but a, a local in, in one of the small towns walking down the street with a NASA shirt. Um, the other example that I love to share is um, an auto insurance company. <laughs> and... Um, Everybody hates to buy auto insurance. It's a terrible product to buy, right? And, number, and, and more than that, you hate to use auto insurance, the product, because it meant you crashed your car, one of the most traumatic experiences we can have. And then you're going to have a yeah. premium the next time you go for it, too. Oh, it's terrible, right? It's a terrible, terrible product. And, and I was speaking to the CEO of an auto insurance company. His name is Mikhail Haggerty. He's the CEO of a, of a company called Haggerty Insurance. They specialize in classic car auto insurance. And he told me, David, everybody hates my product. It sucks. Nobody likes to buy auto insurance. Um, and he recognized that he couldn't sell the way everybody else sells auto insurance, either based on price or based on ridiculous amounts of money on television commercials. So what he did instead was he set out to build fans, specifically set out to build fans. And they do classic car auto insurance. And so there he go, he and his team go to over 100 classic car events every year uh, around North America. And they give, uh, and they give uh, seminars on uh, all kinds of different things related to classic cars. They have a valuation report where they track the value of classic cars uh, on a graph. So you can see over the last couple decades, what how your car has changed in value and maybe you can predict where it's going to go in the future. Um, they have a YouTube channel with them with something like a million followers, a, an auto insurance company with a YouTube channel. It's a million followers. And, um, and, and they are now the largest classic car insurance company in the world. Um, they're going to grow by 200,000 new customers this year. They've had double digit annual growth every single year since they started and they built it all on fans and fandom. And I'm actually a customer of a 1973 Land Rover that, that's insured by Haggerty. And um, I love to reap, to pay for my auto insurance, to, to re-up every year because I'm a fan. Well, it, it's I, a classic case of going beyond the product. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. Because the product is auto insurance. Terrible product. Everyone hates it. But they went way beyond it. And they, and they built a tribe of people around it that love what they do. So one of the other comments I had previously was as to the, the, the right timing of phrenocracy. And the, the thought that I have as to why people might also wish to have be fans of brands as well as music and so on, is that in society today, there seems to be a dearth of community. 
which in the end of the day is less nuclear or you know collected families yes and less religion or at least yes in many parts of the world less people going to church yes. and so i think of it as a movement towards belonging to communities and that openness to wanting to do it even if it's a car insurance dealer yes no i think you're absolutely right and we actually dug into that from an interesting perspective, and, and you've obviously thought about it a lot based on this question, so you may be interested in our take on this. We asked, I'm, I think I'm up to about 4,000 people around the world, um, a series of several questions. The first question we asked is, defining a fanocracy or a, a fandom that one has as something that you're incredibly passionate about, something that you're eager to replicate, something that um, the other people who share that fandom with you are among your best friends, something that you spend time and or money to do. Um, so th those are sort of the definitions. And, you know, for me, going to live music shows, especially The Grateful Dead, my daughter, you know, anything around Harry Potter, um, we all have our fandoms, you know, whatever it is, snowboarding or the Boston Red Sox or um, bird watching or um, whatever it is. How many fandoms do you have? That's the first question I asked. And it turns out the average is two and a half. And. Interestingly, 5% of the population that we've asked consistently every time we ask it have zero fandoms. 5% of people do not have something that they are incredibly passionate about. The second question we ask is, of the thing that you're most passionate, so for me that would be live music, when did you start that fandom? For me that was age 15. The average is age 12. Now, here's why I think this is fascinating. It's because in our, and it gets to exactly what you just talked about, in our society um, around the world, um, developing, developed societies, we no longer have a coming of age ceremony. Mm -hmm. we, no, we no longer have a formal ceremony to um, elevate somebody from childhood to adulthood. There are some religions that do, you know, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, for example, but for the most part, that's gone from our society. However, that's been a part of society since the beginning of time. We actually wanted to test that. Um, my daughter and I, as I keep saying, we, my co-author and I, so we went, um, I went to Panama to the indigenous people of Panama in the Cunayala area. I actually am a part owner of, a, of, a, of an eco-preserve. Uh, we own 12,000 acres in Panama and bordering our reserve are, is this um, indigenous people uh, of Panama. Uh, and they, ha they live in a community, this particular um, village we went to is a community of about 100 people and they live in grass huts. They have no electricity, they have no running water. They still have a coming of age ceremony. It's incredibly important when girls age hit, hit puberty. Um, but we don't have that. But but here's what happens is that and, and here's why age 12 is the time that you um, develop this fandom is because children who are on the cusp of adulthoods create their own coming of age ceremony. 
And for me, totally. it w- and for me, it was going with my friends to rock concerts. And I lived in Connecticut at the time, um, and New York City was a one-hour train ride away from the town I lived in. And so, starting at age 15, which is pretty darn young, my friends and I, like usually a group of four or five of us, would get on the train. I, one of our parents would drive us to the train station. We'd get on the train an hour to New York City. We knew the bars that would serve us, even though we were underage, have something to drink, go to a show, which, and there was elements of danger in doing all of this. Sure. Um, and we were, we were expressing our budding adulthood in a coming of age process that we devised ourselves, And that's why the idea of going to live music shows is still so incredibly powerful for me, even today, 40 years later. And that's because um, because it became so important to me at that time as I was growing up. And we, we talked with lots and lots of people who did the same thing, whatever that is that they loved to do when they were reaching puberty. And, um, uh, and, and I, and I, so I think you're absolutely right when you, when you say that we don't really have those things that we can bond with other people who are like us. We also don't have those things that mark um, the passage into adulthood the way we used to throughout human history. Well, it does speak to the fact that there are only two and a half per person, a limited real estate. On average. On I understand. Average. But let's say yeah. for the 4,000 people, two and a half, that's basically 10,000 options for these, this group of 4,000. So if you're a brand, you only have, you have to, you have to, you know, fight to get into the top part of that little two and a half, whatever, you know, if you want to be as a brand chasing those fans. One of the things, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, you write about fan fiction and you've been yes. sort of telling me the, not the fiction, but the narrative behind how you became a fan of rock concerts and so on. But what about fan friction mm. and how that can play into this sort of coming of ageness and the, the challenges that you've overcoming and getting onto the train and buying the underage beer. And that's a, I would call it a friction with regard to what you're doing as a fan of of music. But what about fan friction for brands? It's interesting. So can you give me an example? I'm not quite sure I'm following So things that are harder to do. So if you want to be, if you you want to be part of this group, this is how high you have to jump. I got you. Yeah, so um, interesting that I think in some cases that can actually be related to this coming of age process or related to the fact that the harder you have to work to get it, the more sweet the result comes becomes like one of my I I have three almost sometimes I call it four really important fandoms myself. Um, Live music, especially the Grateful Dead is number one. The Apollo Lunar Program is number two and surfing is number three. And for me with surfing, I learned as an adult, I learned in my 30s, and I'm terrible at it. Um, but to surf, you have to go through a big freaking deal, right? You have to find the waves. Uh, you have to wait for the waves to like become big enough to surf, or in my case, not too big, because I'm not that great a surfer. Then you have to like deal with the locals who are on that beach and make sure you don't get yourself punched in the nose. 
<laughs> you have all the gear to put on because I typically surf in colder waters, you know, the wetsuits and all that. Um, the boards, which are big, which you have to go on the top of the car. I mean, it's a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of friction involved. But man, when you catch a wave, there is nothing like it. It's nothing like it. Um, so it's an amazing, amazing experience. Um, and I think there is some truth to this idea of, of friction. Um, but, you know, in thinking about fandom and the things that we are most passionate about, um, and you called it the 10,000 of those people um, that I've been speaking with. Um, we, of course, can nominally become fans of things. Mm -hmm. You know, we can wear the T-shirt of the B2B company that we like to do business with. We can put the sticker on the back of our computer of the, the rock band that we like. Even though they're not the Grateful Dead, we, I still like them. Um, so I think that there's still an opportunity to become a fan of something and to call yourself a fan and to exhibit those qualities of fandom, even though it's not that rabid thing that you have been a part of for a really long time. Another way to look at it is, can you tap as an, as a company, can you tap into some part of fandom? Um, so I mentioned earlier Haggerty insurance, they were very clever at that because, and McKeel Haggerty actually said to me, I'm going to paraphrase the quote. I don't have it right in front of me right now, but the quote is basically, David, I didn't have to invent the passion for classic cars. I didn't have to invent um, the idea of going to classic car shows. All I had to do was align myself with the passion that already existed. So, in many cases, they may not be a rabid fan of you and say, oh, my God, I love these guys so much. But you can tie yourself to something that they're already a rabid fan of. Love it. So when you're running a brand, David, to touch into this fandoms, whether it's classic cars in the case of, of um, Hegarty or other to what extent does it have to be a personal mission for the people working inside the company? Mm. So we found lots and lots and lots of evidence that a very important um, component of this type of fandom comes from the passion that the people who work at that company have. Um, the people that you meet from that company, um, how much passion do they have? And in fact, in some of the cases of companies that have developed fandom, um, they're actually conscious of creating that passion. Uh, a couple examples, I spoke with one CEO um, who his company's Instavisor, and he specifically said, uh, he, he's actually personally, the CEO, Pete uh, Cipollone is his name, is, is a, an Olympic gold medalist uh, in rowing. And he said that he, per, he likes to hire elite athletes, other former Olympians, or actually currently training elite athletes or world champions, because he said, uh, or, or college champion kind of athletes. He says, because those people are ones who have so much passion for their sport that they've been able to get to the top of their sport. And that passion um, for what they love to do on their, in their personal life 
becomes a part of making them passionate for what they do professionally. In other words, um, to quote my daughter in our book, um, passion is infectious. Passion is infectious. So uh, another person told us when we were interviewing her that passion is the most important thing she hires for. And she said, um, I ask uh, when I when people come in for an interview, I ask them a number of questions. One of the questions that I ask that's the most important question comes near the end of the interview. And it's this. If you were in a room with two with 2000 people, what could you confidently say you are the best at? And the answer to that question, she says, is the most important thing in the interview, because that's um, what will what determines for her if this individual has an incredible amount of passion. Um, and so I think that um, having employees who are passionate in their personal life for something, it can be anything, mm. is a predictor. Uh, the fact that they live a, a wonderful and interesting life is a predictor that they're going to be passionate around the brand that they're working with. And that is a very important component, you know, and um, we inter we had a couple of examples in our book of, for example, of um, going to a restaurant where the waiter is incredibly enthusiastic and how different the experience can be if you go to a restaurant and the waiter is just like going through the motions and right. doing the job. Well, so on the one hand, you have the quality of enthusiasm. The other is a quality of impassionable <laughs> Yeah. About anything. And I can't help but think you mentioned that where you implied this notion of a scale of fandom. I can't imagine, you know, there's some some industries where hardcore fans seem like a stretch. Let's <laughs> say investment banking or, you know, insurance companies in general. They, they, they seem to run out of <laughs> passion and they run it out of you. I mean, that's the it's almost the nature of the business. Yeah. So g gathering passion when you need to be super rational and numbers oriented, as you might do in in a banking world, the scale of fandom is is slide slid down. But can it be as powerful in that kind of a context as opposed to, you know, your classic car guy? Well, here's I believe so. Yes. And here's where I think it can come in very strongly and powerfully. And that is um, that people just want to do business with people, especially in a kind of commodity business like banking, for example. And if you're given a choice of the type of banker you want to work with, um, having working with someone who's passionate about something is way more interesting than working with someone who's just by the books. And, and, and I'll give you an example um, of a dentist. His name is Dr. John Marashi. Dr. Marashi um, uh, is an interesting guy because he is a dentist in Southern California. And there's something like 10,000 dentists in Southern California. There's a lot of dentists. And how do you compete, right? And if you go to any of the dentists in Southern California's website, what do you see? You see the before and after teeth shot, right? You see the dirty, crooked teeth. And then you see the clean, straight teeth. And, and it's all similar. And then they have pictures of their, their waiting room and, and the equipment and maybe the posed picture of the dentist, you know, with the white coat on. And then maybe a, 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 a listing of you have to have a, a plaque, a, of, a, a plaque of, of where they of the school that they went to. Right. It's all the same. 
Um, I was speaking with Dr. Marashi about three or four years ago, and he came to me and he said, David, you know, I, I just want to figure out how I can grow my business. And I go, what do you like to do off time? Not. And he goes, I love to skateboard. Skateboarding's my thing. Go, That's it. That's what you're going to focus on. So he created an Instagram, Dr. John Marashi. You can go to, you know, just do a Google search for Instagram, Dr. John Marashi, you'll find him. He, um, he has an Instagram now with something like 13,000 followers. And he has a bunch of images of him skateboarding. <laughs> and that has become incredibly powerful because it shows he's not just a dentist. He's somebody who has a passion for life. And if you and there's actually some pictures on his website, there's some pictures of his office and you see on the office wall, there's skateboards um, like works, like they're like works of art. They're displayed on the on the wall of his um, of his dental practice. And he told me, David, just by changing my Instagram to show the things that I'm passionate about, I've increased my business by 30 percent. And the reason is people come to me and they go, wow, you're the guy who skateboards that I was attracted to that. So I'm, that's why I'm here. Um, 30 percent more business just by showcasing what he's passionate about. And that's been the um, differentiator in a in a business where, you know, one dentist appears exactly the same as another dentist. And you mentioned financial services. That's true of financial services, too. I mean, one banker looks like another banker looks like another banker. And I think that there's this um, this myth of professionalism that so many people are led to believe that, you know, you need, especially if you're doing something like banking or dentistry, you need to show that you're always being serious and professional and, and, and so on. And I don't believe that. And in doing the research around this book, the evidence shows that that's not, that's not true. And the, uh, another myth uh, is this concept of work-life balance, which I hear all the time, work-life balance. Um, I think that's a bunch of BS because that implies that work is one thing and life is the other. I think what's way better is how do you make work part of your life and life part of your work? And that makes for interesting people like John, Dr. John Marashi. And I want to work with a banker who's passionate about something. I don't need to share the passion, but I want to know that they're real people. So, you know, many, many professionals have their business stuff over on LinkedIn and their personal stuff over on Facebook. I, I, I don't like that it, you, make, you, you have them separate. I want to know the personality of, of the person to see if there's someone I want to do business with first. Yet another reason why we see eye to eye, David. <laughs> um, last question. Uh, what, yeah, which... I know. It's funny. It's funny. I mean, you and I have, <laughs> have so many things in common, which is really, really interesting about what we think about work, what we think about how CEOs should behave, what we yeah. think about, um, you know, how to make your life interesting. And, and, and to credit to your storytelling, I've been writing down thoughts, and that's what beautiful storytelling does, okay. David. So um, last question, which is just uh, with regard to your book, you, you mentioned this notion of being fan-centric. Can you, in short order, describe to us what's the difference between customer-centric and fan-centric? How is this a new adaptation, or, or how, what should we be thinking about in brands, if that's what we want to do? So, yes, thank you for the question. Um, one of the things that we talk about 
a lot in the book is actually a specific chapter on it is the idea that once you put your product or service out there into the world, you no longer own it. So that's fan centric. Fan centric is saying that here is our, our art, here's our product, here's our service, here's what we created. Thank you very much for being a part of it. Please use it. Um, whereas customer centric is really focused on um, on something else. So let me give you a couple of examples around the idea of fan centric. Um, uh, the idea that once you put your product or service out there, you no, you no longer own it is something that or an organization that may even consider themselves customer centric does not practice. Let me give you an example of that Adobe. So Adobe makes photo among other products. They make Photoshop. And my daughter, um, Reiko, who my, my co-author on Fanocracy is a really, really big fan of making art using Photoshop. And she has other people who she's met on in the online world on forums and chat rooms and blogs and other places who are also um, create art using Photoshop. And on those um, particular online sites, they share techniques among each other, like how to do a particular brush stroke using Photoshop. And she said that she she often sees people laughing at Adobe on these sites because of the ways that they actively discourage fandom of the people who like to make fan art using Adobe Photoshop. First of all, Adobe looks at their customers, their customer-centric thing is being only business people mm. and people who buy large numbers of Photoshop. They actively discourage individual creators to use their products. So that's the first thing. For them, customer-centric means only a certain time, type of customer. Um, the other thing that they do is they insist that their fans, I'll call them fans, uh, only um, talk about Adobe under in the approved way of with Adobe. A little, with a little R behind it. Yeah, so ex exactly. So what they say is, you may not say that you photoshopped something. You must say that you manipulated something using Adobe trademark circle R, Photoshop trademark circle R software. And Reiko said to me, Daddy, they, you know, my friends and I, my online friends and I who are fans of creating art using Photoshop just laugh at them because they, um, they, everything that they say we should say sounds like a robot, whereas everything we say sounds like a fan talking. So to become fan-centric, you need to recognize that the fans rule, and that's why I chose the word fanocracy as the name for the book, because a democracy is ruled by the, by the many, um, a meritocracy ruled by the, the ones with the most ability, a monarchy ruled by um, the royal family. A fanocracy is a culture that's ruled by fans. Let me give you an example. On the other side, um, there's a robotic vacuum cleaner company um, named iRobot that makes the Roomba vacuum cleaner. We right? Really cool. We own one. Oh, you have one. Nice. And there's become a, a, a huge number of fans of Roomba that do interesting things with their Roomba and then take videos of it and share them on YouTube. One of the biggest subgenres of this is putting your pet 
on the Roomba, or many times the pet naturally gravitate to going on the Roomba themselves. So the, the, the dog or the cat is Providing on the they're small. They've got to be small pets. But on this, well, actually, I've seen ones with some pr- pretty big animals <laughs> on the Roomba. But anyway, there's, there's, there's videos that have had tens of millions of views on YouTube of dogs and cats and other animals um, um, on a Roomba going around the room. And it's like Uber for kitties. It's hysterical. And so um, that is allowing fans to take control. And um, what Roomba could do is go all legal the way that Adobe did and, and, and say, oh my God, we're going to get sued if the cat gets hurt. And, and you know, this is not an approved use of the, uh, of, of the Roomba product. You must take this down from YouTube. No. They celebrate the fact that their fans do crazy things with their product and want to share on social media. That's letting the fans rule. Letting go. David, beautiful. Oh, I Great love those stories. Tell us how someone can grab a fanocracy in a hurry. Fanocracy. Um, so fanocracy.com is a site that I've got with a bunch of content on it around this, the ideas of this book. Um, on social networks, I'm DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T. And um, Reiko and I had fun actually recording the audiobook together um, oh, nice. for Fanocracy. So if you're an audiobook person, and perhaps you are because you're listening to a podcast right, right. now, uh, then maybe the audiobook version is the best. But, you know, the bottom line here that that I found so fascinating is I went into this project five years ago, just being a geeky, grateful dead fan and thinking of how powerful the idea of fandom is. And what I came away with is the idea that any business doesn't matter what it is or any person or any idea can create fans. And after studying it for five years, we've come up with a, uh, a really um, powerful prescription for how any organization can and should develop fans. So I'm really excited that this book, after f- so much work, is finally out into the marketplace. It's a hardback with, from Penguin. Congratulations for that, too. And it, it, what I liked in particular, David, in recap from my end, is that it's not just about the Patagonias of the world. Yeah. You, you've found ways, in the way you've expressed it during this podcast, to allow anybody have the permission to go out and create some kind of fandom, whether you're in the most monolithic, boring space up to space. Right. All right. Uh, boring space to literal space. Indeed. Um, exactly. And we, we purposely avoided any of the examples that, um, that are, that are obvious, you know, there's no Apple, there's no Patagonia. Good examples, but we really wanted to dig way deeper. Love it. David, thanks again. Thank you, Minter. Always great to chat. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. is a real
best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. 
Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.